Hello, and welcome to another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. I will be your host. My name is Linda Yin, and I am joined today by Dr. Chintakunt Lawar, who is a medical oncologist specializing in head and neck cancer. Dr. C, thanks so much for being here. Oh, thank you, Linda. Thank you for the invitation, uh, and thank you for the opportunity to connect with colleagues uh, everywhere. Great. Today we're going to be talking about principles of chemotherapy. And what that means is that we're going to talk about some general principles for chemotherapy use in head and neck cancer, specifically for squamous cell carcinomas. To understand all the different chemotherapeutic options that we have available to us would, of course, take years of training. But today we're just going to focus, again, on some concepts that every ENT should really understand. When should we be referring patients for chemotherapy? What patient factors are our medical oncologists considering when they're evaluating patients? And what are the sentinel chemotherapy studies in our field that we should really understand? So starting with the presentation section, Dr. C, in what settings do patients get referred to you for consideration of chemotherapy? Uh, typically, chemotherapy in head and neck cancer is used as a part of multimodality therapy, uh, care for almost all of the cancer patients is nowadays uh, multidisciplinary, but head and neck cancer uh, is a prime example of that. Uh, I don't think you can treat any head and neck cancer patient in isolation. You mostly see patients in head and neck cancer clinic uh, in the context of locally advanced head and neck cancers uh, and uh, therapy for recurrent and metastatic head and neck uh, squamous cell carcinomas. Uh, it also plays a major role in the therapy for nasopharyngeal carcinoma, but uh, we won't be talking about it today. Uh, it also could be uh, in consideration for rare tumors such as salivary gland carcinomas, uh, sinonasal carcinomas, and occasionally in uh, aggressive uh, thyroid carcinomas as well. Now, uh, like you talked about, we're going to be focusing on squamous cell cancers. In terms of the epidemiology of this disease, how common is it for patients with squamous cell carcinomas of the head and neck to require some sort of chemotherapy? The burden for the incidence and uh, prevalence is mainly carried by locally advanced uh, head and neck squamous cell carcinomas. Almost 60% of them fall into this category, and systemic therapy plays a large role in this patient population as a radiosensitizer and occasionally as an induction uh, therapy. Uh, locally advanced uh, head and neck squamous cell carcinomas uh, are uh, more common than early stage or recurrent and metastatic disease. Uh, now, before we go any further into this interview, I, uh, you've already kind of thrown some of these terms out there, so I think we should define it for the listener. Can you explain what you mean by these different chemotherapy strategies, uh, specifically definitive, adjuvant, neoadjuvant, and... Uh, sure. Uh, definitive therapy or definitive chemoradiotherapy is where chemotherapy used concurrently with radiotherapy as a part of multimodality therapy. Uh, usually it is, a, uh, it is with curative intent. Uh, it is a primary therapy and surgery is uh, only used as a salvage treatment uh, later in the follow-up. The uh, motivation or rationale behind uh, uh, simultaneous use of chemotherapy here is to synergize with radiotherapy and maximize its therapeutic effect. Compare that to adjuvant therapy, where chemotherapy is primarily used in the post-operative setting. Uh, in head and neck squamous cell carcinomas, adjuvant chemotherapy is almost always given concurrently with radiotherapy. 
the goal here is to treat the microscopic residual disease with an aim to decrease the probability of recurrence later. New adjuvant or induction chemotherapy is given before a local treatment modality such as surgery or radiotherapy. If chemotherapy is given before radiotherapy is often referred to as induction chemotherapy and if it is given prior to surgery it is often called as new adjuvant therapy. Whereas Palliative therapy or palliative systemic therapy is a term used in the context of recurrent and metastatic disease that cannot be treated with surgery or radiotherapy anymore. And usually this is an incurable context and the goal is to improve the symptom burden and the quality of life for the patient. Uh, And additionally, the goal is also to improve the survival for these patients. And um, when you're seeing a patient in clinic uh, that you're considering for chemotherapy, what sort of history are you taking from them? As a medical student, resident, and even as a uh, practicing physician, I I think uh, this aspect of a patient evaluation is very important. There are many factors to consider, and I think it is worth spending a lot of time here uh, uh, with the patient. Uh, The things that I... uh, personally focus on is uh, whether the patient is getting therapy in the context of curative or palliative intent, uh, and if it is curative, whether it is adjuvant or definitive therapy, uh, patient's age, performance status, medical comorbidities such as heart, lung, kidney disease, whether they have uh, hearing loss, uh, tinnitus, neuropathy, uh, I also pay special attention to their profession and hobbies because the toxicities that we can uh, expose them uh, to can have a profound effect uh, on their hobbies and profession in the future. Taking a good history uh, with regards to their current medications, including uh, uh, supplements such as herbal supplements and medical marijuana use or other recreational drug use is also important. It is uh, also very important, especially in the context of head and neck cancer, to uh, ask them about their social and family support, their symptom burden, uh, including dysphagia, pain, weight loss, any uh, other associated symptoms. Uh, It is also uh, important to ask about history of smoking, uh, alcohol use, And also very important to differentiate uh, smoking from uh, smokeless tobacco, as often patients uh, will say no to smoking but won't volunteer the history for uh, smokeless tobacco. In countries outside of the United States, there are other forms of tobacco, such as betel nut or flavored and non-flavored chewing tobacco that is commonly used. It is also very important to ask them about their past history, uh, including any previous cancer or therapy given for that cancer, including radiotherapy and chemotherapy, as there is a definite uh, dose or a lifetime uh, dose that can be given for certain chemotherapies and definitely for radiotherapy. It is also important to ask about allergies uh, that could be important to know when you are planning further treatment. Thanks. I think that's very comprehensive. And I often hear medical oncologists uh, speak about a patient's performance status. Can you tell us how you're defining this and what that means? There are uh, many ways to define this, but the two most commonly used uh, 
scales are ECOG performance status or the Karnofsky score, uh, uh, I think it is okay to remember uh, at least one of them when you are evaluating the patient. Uh, it's an easiest way to determine how fit your patient is and how the cancer is affecting them. For example, uh, ECOG is graded from grade 0 to 5, where 0 is fully active uh, with no symptoms from the cancer, to 5 where the person uh, ha has died. Uh, and grade 1, 2, 3, and 4 are varying degrees of uh, disability from the cancer. And you also talked about um, important things to ask in terms of the medical history. Are there any specific comorbidities that you focus on that may pose a risk to chemotherapy and may even be contraindications for certain types of chemotherapy? Uh, absolutely. Uh, I usually, in the context of head and neck cancers, ask about coronary artery disease, uh, diabetes, uh, neuropathy from diabetes or any other cause, uh, hearing loss, tinnitus, uh, autoimmune disease, chronic infections such as HIV and other hepatitis infections. Also very important to know about their uh, hist uh, psychosocial history, including a uh, history of any major depression, anxiety, or panic attacks. And uh, there are certain uh, groups that also uh, deserve special attention, such as geriatric patients, and I uh, usually ask them about falls recently, uh, dementia, who their primary caretaker is and where do they live. And in young patients, uh, it is also very important to go over their sexual history, including uh, use of contraception and any plans to have kids in the future, as some chemotherapies could definitely affect their uh, fertility in the future. And moving on to the physical exam, after you've obtained all this history, what sort of physical exam do you perform in the office before you're initiating chemotherapy? Uh, just like the history taking, I think this is also a very important part of patient evaluation, uh, which unfortunately uh, is not getting uh, deserved attention nowadays. Uh, I usually do a very comprehensive physical exam including uh, skin, uh, ear, and a scalp examination in the context of head and neck cancers, uh, palpate their lymph nodes, and uh, carefully inspect their oral cavity and palpate the oral cavity uh, in addition to the usual uh, examination of heart, lung, and uh, central nervous system. Uh, this is very important to uh, remember cons uh, considering that we are relying on scans more and more uh, and unusual things that we are facing such as uh, COVID-19 pandemic where we are probably going to use more and more telemedicine. Unfortunately in head and neck uh, cancers uh, feeling, palpating, uh, looking is very important and hence uh, uh, these things will be important for us to stick to in the future uh, even if the other parts of the medicine changes. Yeah, that, I think that's a great point. Uh, moving on to the workup, some of these scans and such, as you say. So say you're evaluating a patient, uh, for, again, for consideration of chemotherapy. What are some basic lab studies that you might get um, or even other tests that you might get uh, before starting? Usually uh, we start with a complete uh, blood count uh, and a comprehensive metabolic panel uh, both of these studies will allow us to uh, evaluate their bone marrow function uh, and uh, kidney and liver function to uh, plan uh, appropriate uh, chemotherapies. 
I also pay special attention to blood glucose uh, as you can certainly miss a mild or a pre-diabetes or untreated diabetes which could be worsened by use of dexamethasone as well as dehydration that uh, most patients uh, experience during chemoradiotherapy. We also usually do a baseline audiogram if you are planning to use cisplatin in any form and especially with high-dose cisplatin. Now, um, shifting to chemotherapy in the postoperative adjuvant setting, here, what are you using and what tests are you using to guide your decision-making? There are uh, many things to consider And like I said previously, uh, head and neck cancer is a prime example of a multidisciplinary effort. So usually uh, it's not a test, but a discussion with a surgeon, uh, a thorough evaluation of an operative report is very important to uh, determine if a patient's uh, resection was optimal or not. And then other things uh, such as pathology report, including um, margin status, uh, nodal involvement, extranodal extension in those lymph nodes, or uh, perineural invasion and lymphovascular invasion in the primary tumor are things that are important to determine when you plan the adjuvant treatment. And now, in talking about uh, chemotherapy now for the recurrent or metastatic setting, what sort of imaging workup uh, do you need to evaluate metastatic disease before you start chemotherapy? Most of the time, we rely on a a PET scan to evaluate the distant metastases as well as uh, look at the local regional spread. In uh, head and neck squamous cell carcinomas, metastases usually are in lymph nodes, lungs, livers, and bones, and PET scan allows you to uh, evaluate for all of those. If that is not available, you could certainly get a CT scan of the neck chest, abdomen, and pelvis, uh, which should be reasonable test as well. Brain is not a very common site of metastasis for head and neck squamous cell carcinomas. It can sometimes happen in HPV-positive disease, uh, but if patient doesn't have any symptoms, there is no need to obtain any uh, brain imaging uh, on a routine basis. And how about, uh, we talked a little bit about the surgical pathology, how about immunohistochemistry or histologic uh, studies, are there any that could be helpful in deciding which therapy that we should start? As a part of evaluation, there are certain immunohistochemical markers or testing that we perform on surgical pathology specimens that guide our decisions. They don't necessarily uh, change the uh, treatment paradigms today, but they certainly uh, will help us prognosticate uh, in case of head and neck squamous cell carcinomas. Uh, in case of uh, oropharyngeal carcinomas, HPV status is very important. This can be accomplished by staining for P16 or uh, more specific tests such as uh, HPV in situ hybridization or PCR studies. In case of nasopharyngeal cancer, uh, EBV positivity could also be uh, looked at. And then in the context of recurrent and metastatic head and neck squamous cell carcinomas, uh, assessment for uh, PDL1 status uh, will help you determine the treatment with regards to immunotherapy or immunotherapy with chemotherapy. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about PDL1 because I think this is a confusing subject for a lot of people. So, what is PDL1 and then what is the CPS score that can sometimes be calculated from this and how are you using that to guide your decision making? 
you're you not alone. This is a confusing thing for all of us because uh, all of these assays have been designed by different companies with different antibodies, uh, different cutoffs, and, so, and given different names such as combined positive score or tumor proportion score. And so... Um, it is not uncommon to get uh, lost in this uh, world. Uh, the combined positive score used in head and neck squamous cell carcinomas is a percentage of PDL1 positive cells within a tumor as a percentage. Usually, uh, this is only used for uh, pembrolizumab, which is one of the anti PD1 antibodies. There are other scores with different names for other immunotherapies. Here, uh, I will use uh, this opportunity uh, to explain how the PDL1 uh, therapy, anti PDL1 therapies or PD1 therapies work. Uh, normally, uh, beyond uh, innate immune response, uh, our bodies utilize uh, acquired immune response to uh, respond to pathogens and amplify the initial immune response and generate memory and preserve that memory. This is accomplished by uh, presentation of antigen-presenting cells, such as dendritic cells, uh, and interacting uh, with the T-cells through T-cell receptor. On the surface of the T-cells, we also have co-stimulatory molecules, such as CD28, uh, that augment the T-cell activation. Think of T-cells as cars, and CD28 would be an accelerator. However, you don't want your car to accelerate forever, so we, have, we also have brakes on the T-cells, and these brakes are called checkpoints, and there are many of them. One of them is called the programmed cell death protein 1, or PD-1. PD-1 interacts with its ligand, PD-L1, or L2, and some tumors, including head and neck squamous cell carcinomas, express PD-L1 on, this, on their surface and use this interaction to put brakes on the T-cells and dampen the immune response. Checkpoint inhibitors, or what we commonly call immunotherapy, such as PD-1 inhibitors, break this interaction, which is analogous to taking the brakes off of your car and thus turning the T-cell on again. Thank you for that explanation. I think that's one of the best ones I've heard to help understand uh, these immune checkpoint inhibitors. I do want to get into more about the meat of these medicines and kind of their mechanisms of action. Um, but before we do that, one last question about workup. I understand that genetic testing of tumors is, is becoming a more popular thing in other pathologies, including those in the head and neck, for example, for thyroid cancers. Is there any role of this in the squamous cell world, and are you using this in your practice? Definitely, uh Currently, I mainly use somatic or tumor mutational profile, uh, mostly in the context of recurrent and metastatic disease. Uh, most of the uh, patients who have uh, metastatic disease have very limited therapeutic options, and somatic mutational profile helps them chart out next line of therapies in the context of clinical trials or targeted therapy. Having said that, uh, in the primary setting, there is not much use for somatic uh, testing yet. But we know that HPV-negative disease has increased incidence of P53 mutation. In comparison, the HPV-positive disease rarely has P53 mutation but has 
mostly mutations in the PI3 kinase and downstream pathways. All right, let's talk a little bit about pharmacology now. So we've used the term chemotherapy so far, but really what this means now, you know, it's kind of a broad term that not only includes our traditional cytotoxic chemotherapies, but also new targeted therapies and like we already talked about immunotherapies. So really maybe a better word for these therapies is really systemic therapy. So can you talk a little bit about these general classes of systemic therapies that we have available to us in head and neck cancer? Absolutely. Yeah. We just talked about immunotherapy and its mechanism of action. The, these are usually monoclonal antibodies that activate our uh, own immune system to destroy the tumor cells. In comparison, the targeted therapy are newer drugs that act on specific molecular targets. Uh, these include uh, drugs such as cetuximab or tyrosine kinase inhibitors such as afatinib that target the uh, epidermal growth factor receptor pathways. The standard cytotoxic chemotherapies or the traditional chemotherapy that we call chemotherapy are the drugs that affect rapidly dividing cells via inhibition of cell division through a variety of mechanisms such as inducing DNA damage or inhibiting DNA synthesis or interfering with the process of cell division. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that. So cisplatin is one of the commonly uh, used uh, drugs and um, heavily featured in this talk. Can you talk a little bit about its mechanism of action and some of the side effects and toxicity profile to watch out for? Cisplatin basically uh, inhibits DNA replication. Uh, when you uh, give this drug, uh, it enters the uh, uh, cells and uh, it binds to the uh, DNA strands and cross-links them, and it prevents the uh, unwinding, replication, and eventually leads to the uh, inability of the uh, cancerous cell to repair its DNA damage and cell death. Uh, this effect is obvious in rapidly dividing cells such as tumor cells or also in other normal cells such as bone marrow, which leads to the toxicity of the drug. Uh, it usually causes cytopenias, but it also can be directly toxic to organs such as kidneys or inner ear, leading to hearing loss and tinnitus. It also can cause peripheral neuropathy, and in acute context, it can also lead to dehydration, electrolyte disturbances such as hypomagnesemia, and nausea and vomiting. Out of these side effects, uh, autotoxicity and peripheral neuropathy sometimes can be permanent. And um, regarding cisplatin, now we talked about using it in a concomitant fashion with radiotherapy and often hear the term cisplatin being used as a radio sensitizer. Can you tell us what that means? Cisplatin uh, is often given with radiotherapy in the context of head and neck squamous cell carcinomas. And referred to as a radiosensitizer because when you give cisplatin along with radiotherapy, it sensitizes the cancer cell to radiotherapy-induced damage, leading to more effective therapy. Great. Moving on now to some of the other cytotoxic drugs, can you talk a little bit about some other commonly used ones in head and neck cancer and um, a brief description of their mechanism of action? Another commonly used platinum agent is carboplatin. Uh, it works in a similar fashion uh, to cisplatin, uh, but it is better tolerated. 
However, there is increased risk of myelosuppression and uh, also allergic reactions with this agent. There is another class of agents called taxanes, which includes paclitaxel and docetaxel. Uh, these agents are called microtubule inhibitors, and they work via prevention of uh, microtubule reorganization during uh, mitosis. Their side effects include uh, cytopenias, including neutropenia, uh, hair loss, or alopecia, mucositis, neuropathy, and again, uh, allergic reactions. 5-fluoropyrimidine or 5-FU uh, is an anti-metabolite which is also commonly used uh, in head and neck squamous carcinomas. This drug uh, binds to thymidylate synthase, uh, an enzyme uh, that is uh, involved in DNA synthesis. So this drug prevents synthesis of DNA. This drug leads to uh, mucositis uh, or GI side effects such as diarrhea, nausea, vomiting, and uh, skin rash. Uh, in rare cases, it can also lead to cardiac toxicity as well. There is a special uh, group of uh, patients who may also have uh, deficiency in an enzyme called uh, DPD. And patients who have this deficiency can have life-threatening uh, side effects from this drug due to reduced uh, metabolism of 5-FU. And moving on to our targeted therapies, um, cetuximab is often used as well. And how does cetuximab work? Cetuximab is a monoclonal antibody against uh, wild-type EGFR. Uh, I might have said it previously or not, but head and neck squamous carcinomas often overexpress wild-type EGFR on their surface. And this drug binds to those receptors and prevents its downstream signaling. The side effects include uh, allergic reactions such as infusion reaction, uh, acne form, skin rash, diarrhea, and electrolyte disturbances such as low magnesium or hypomagnesemia. It also has a black box warning for uh, sudden cardiac death or cardiopulmonary arrest in about 3% of patients. So it's not very common, but you should be aware of that. This drug also has some other interesting uh, Things such as patients who have rash are more likely to respond to the uh, agent, uh, as well as the hypersensitivity uh, that is uh, seen with this drug is associated with alpha-gal antibodies and uh, more common in southeastern United States where uh, tick infections are common. This is the same antibody that causes red meat-associated hypersensitivity as well. That's really interesting. Um, and now, finally, the immunotherapies. We've already kind of gone into depth about their mechanism of action, but can you just introduce us to the two common ones that are used? The two FDA-approved immunotherapies uh, used in the context of head and neck squamous cell carcinomas are nivolumab or Abdivo and pembrolizumab or Keytruda. Both of these are anti-PD-1 antibodies manufactured by two different uh, pharmaceutical companies. There are other uh, immunotherapies uh, that are on the market, but they are not yet approved for head and neck squamous cell carcinomas. And then there are many others that are in the pipeline. Uh, so this is an exciting field and will probably change significantly in the coming years. Okay, now that we've gained some basic knowledge and basic background on some of these systemic therapies, let's talk specifics about regimens that are actually used in practice. 
So I understand one of the first major indications for concurrent chemoradiation therapy in head and neck cancer was in the larynx cancer world. And people often talk about the laryngeal organ preservation trials uh, from the VA. Can you tell us a little bit about this? The VA trial published uh, in 1991 in New England Journal of Medicine was the uh, seminal trial. Uh, this study uh, used uh, organ preservation uh, for the first time and showed the feasibility of this approach uh, in laryngeal squamosal carcinomas. This trial enrolled uh, stage 3 and 4 laryngeal squamosal carcinoma patients uh, and randomized them to primary laryngectomy followed by radiotherapy, which was the standard of care at that time, versus an experimental arm where cisplatin and infusional 5-FU was given as an induction chemotherapy. And if the patient responded to this chemotherapy, then they went on to have radiotherapy as their primary treatment, thus saving the larynx. If patients did not respond to the chemotherapy, then they went on to have laryngectomy followed by radiotherapy as standard of care. With this approach, uh, it was shown that 64% of the patients were able to save their larynx without compromising their overall survival, thus showing us that this approach is indeed feasible in majority of the patients. Later on in 2003, RTOG 9111 established concurrent chemoradiotherapy as the standard of care for organ preservation. In this trial, there were three arms, uh, radiotherapy alone or sequential arms such as VA trial where chemotherapy was followed by radiotherapy or a third arm where chemotherapy was given concurrently with radiotherapy. And the chemotherapy here was 100 milligram per meter square of cisplatin. And this trial showed that the concurrent chemotherapy arm was superior compared to the other two arms in uh, organ preservation and thus establishing concurrent chemotherapy as the standard of care approach. And how about moving outside of the larynx for the other subsites in the head and neck? How has concurrent uh, chemotherapy uh, and radiation therapy evolved at these other subsites? And what are some of the sentinel trials that we should know about? The initial two trials that established uh, concurrent chemoradiotherapy as standard of care at other subsites uh, included the GORTEC trial as well as the uh, intergroup trials here in the United States. Uh, the uh, GORTEC trial used a different backbone for chemoradiotherapy. Uh, they used carboplatin and 5-FU uh, along with radiotherapy as their concurrent chemoradiotherapy uh, strategy, whereas the intergroup trials used 100 milligram per meter square of cisplatin as their concurrent uh, chemoradiotherapy approach. Uh, all of these trials established uh, that concurrent chemoradiotherapy was superior uh, approach for organ preservation at uh, other subsites, including oropharynx. And to clarify, that's superior compared to radiotherapy alone? Correct. Compared to uh, radiotherapy alone or in the intergroup trials, there were some other uh, approaches tried as well, including uh, split course RT, uh, which was found to be uh, inferior to uh, concurrent chemoradiotherapy. And what about cetuximab? Is this first line or is this second line? Does it work as well as cisplatin when we're using it, again, in the context of definitive concurrent chemoradiation treatment? This is an interesting uh, question uh, because if you asked me this question a few years ago, 
cetuximab uh, would have been a fairly good option for patients who are chemotherapy ineligible or were not eligible for cisplatin due to some pre-existing comorbidities such as neuropathy or a severe hearing loss. The use of cetuximab was first demonstrated in the Bonner trial in 2006. In this trial, stage 3 or 4 uh, head and neck squamosal carcinomas uh, at all subsites, including larynx, oropharynx, and hypopharynx, were included, and comparison arms were radiotherapy alone or radiotherapy concurrently with cetuximab. And the cetuximab plus radiotherapy arm showed better progression-free survival as well as overall survival, thus establishing cetuximab as another approach in chemotherapy-ineligible patients. And somehow this creeped up into the uh, treatment as an alternate approach rather than using only for chemotherapy-ineligible patients. However, uh, Two recent trials, RTOG 1016 and de-escalate HPV, which were studying cetuximab plus radiotherapy as a de-escalation approach compared to cisplatin plus radiotherapy, showed that cetuximab was inferior in terms of not only uh, local regional control but also overall survival uh, in the context of HPV-positive disease. Interestingly, both low-risk as well as intermediate risk HPV-positive cancer showed inferior survival with cetuximab. And so you should use it very carefully and only in chemotherapy-ineligible patients. Now, um, shifting gears now, talking a little bit about the toxicities of treatment. We talked about theoretical toxicities as part of uh, side effect profiles of many of these drugs. But how do you quantify this in the clinical setting? Uh, what does toxicity mean for the patient? In the uh, medical oncology world, we usually quantify toxicities using common toxicity criteria published by the National Cancer Institute, uh, and the toxicities could be lab abnormalities or symptoms that the patient is experiencing. And you technically should uh, record all of them at every visit. From the CTCAE, the grading for the adverse event goes from 0 to 5, where 5 is uh, fatal toxicity. Although this is mostly done by the providers, nowadays the push is to include patient-reported outcomes uh, rather than the provider-reported outcomes. And hence, uh, there are some new uh, methodologies coming, including app-based reporting uh, uh, that patient can do using a smartphone. Now, talking a little bit uh, again about toxicities, we mentioned cisplatin and we mentioned specifically the 100 milligrams per meter squared dosing of cisplatin. Is this what's referred to as high-dose cisplatin? And are there any other ways to dose cisplatin? I've seen certainly other doses um, in patient charts that I've read. What are the alternatives and what are the pros and cons in terms of toxicity? The high-dose cisplatin usually means 100 milligram per meter square. And in fact, that is the only dose that has level 1 evidence for its used in uh, head and neck squamosal carcinomas. The other way cisplatin is used often is 40 milligram per meter square weekly dose, uh, and that doesn't usually have much evidence behind it, but most 
head and neck cancer experts agree that it is reasonable to use that dose in some contexts. The toxicities are more or less same uh, that we have previously discussed, but there are some notable differences. For example, nausea, vomiting, uh, electrolyte disturbances, cytopenias, nephrotoxicity are uh, definitely more with high-dose cisplatin compared to the weekly cisplatin. There is unfortunately no direct comparison between 100 mg per meter square and 40 mg per meter square uh, in a phase 3 trial. All right, now we've now mostly talked about using uh, cisplatin in the concurrent curative definitive treatment setting. Switching to recurrent or metastatic cases now, what kind of systemic therapies have been shown to be effective for these patients? Before 2019, the standard of care used to be the extreme regimen. Uh, this was published in 2008, where cetuximab was added to a platinum doublet and was shown to be superior in comparison to a platinum doublet. Uh, however, uh, just recently in 2019, Keynote 048 trial studied this extreme regimen in comparison to immunotherapy alone or immunotherapy plus a platinum doublet. And the immunotherapy used in this trial was pembrolizumab, which is an anti-PD-1 inhibitor antibody that we previously discussed. In this trial, recurrent metastatic uh, head and neck squamous carcinoma patients were randomized to three arms, pembrolizumab alone or pembrolizumab plus chemotherapy or the traditional extreme regimen with cetuximab. Pembrolizumab alone performed better than extreme in patients with combined positive score of one or more, and especially well in patients with combined positive score of 20 or more. Whereas pembrolizumab plus chemotherapy performed better than extreme in the total population or where combined positive score was not known or available. Now, uh, because of this trial, pembrolizumab plus platinum-based chemotherapy is standard of care for all patients, or you can select your patients using CPS or combined positive score for pembrolizumab alone as the standard of care first-line treatment. And finally, wrapping up now, uh, after you've given patients some of these systemic therapies, how are you following up with them, and what are some late toxicities that you might look for and follow up? Uh, we usually follow uh, head and neck squamous cell carcinoma patients every three to four months for the first two years, and then every six months or annually for uh, five years. Uh, with regards to systemic therapies, you need to watch for uh, persistent nephrotoxicity, ototoxicity, peripheral neuropathy, uh, and thyroid dysfunction. You should also encourage patients for uh, smoking cessation or limiting their alcohol and encourage lifestyle modifications such as uh, healthy diet and regular exercise. Especially in the context of head and neck cancers, uh, monitoring patients' psychiatric health is also very important. Major depression, and suicide is far more common in head and neck cancer patients compared to the other cancer patients. Okay, well, those are some general principles of chemotherapy in a nutshell for the ENT surgeon. Let's move on to the summary section now. So I'll be providing some key points from the talk. Chemotherapy is usually given in three major contexts as a treatment for head and neck cancer. 
The first is concurrently with radiotherapy as a part of definitive intent-to-cure therapy. The second is in the adjuvant setting, and this can be either given as adjuvant treatment after surgical resection of local regional disease or as neoadjuvant therapy, uh, sometimes called induction chemotherapy, prior to surgical treatment. Chemotherapy can also be used uh, in the third way, which is for uh, first-line therapy for recurrent or metastatic cancers. When a patient comes into the office for consideration of chemotherapy, it's important, first of all, to establish with them their goals of care. Then we want to take a careful history and a comprehensive history, as well as perform a careful physical exam. The patient's performance status, that is, their function in their daily lives, should be assessed before the treatment is offered. Workup prior to starting chemotherapy includes basic labs, such as a CBC and a BMP, to look for the kidney and liver functions. If cisplatin is being considered, it's also a good idea to get a baseline audiogram, and that's because of the ototoxicity side effect profile of this drug. In terms of histopathologic studies, there are some important tests that are, that are important to uh, obtain before starting chemotherapy, and this includes HPV status or P16 staining on the tumor specimen, and in some cases of recurrence or metastatic disease, also staining for PDL1, the program death uh, ligand 1, uh, to calculate the combined positive score, which may determine a patient's response uh, likelihood to immunotherapy. There are three types of systemic therapies that are widely used in head and neck cancer. The first is standard traditional cytotoxic uh, chemotherapy agents. The second is targeted therapies, uh, and namely a drug called cetuximab, which is a monoclonal antibody against the EGFR receptor, as well as immunotherapies that serve to boost the body's own immune system against these tumors. Cisplatin is, of course, the workhorse of head and neck chemotherapy. It is a DNA alkylating agent that crosslinks DNA strands. And the main toxicities that we need to be aware of are nephrotoxicity, some peripheral neuropathy, as well as ototoxicity, the latter two of which may be permanent. Cisplatin is often referred to as a radiosensitizer because it can work synergistically with radiation therapy and compound uh, the effect on killing tumor cells. The feasibility and rationale behind concurrent chemoradiation therapy was first established in the subside of the larynx. The VA larynx preservation trial showed that organ preservation therapy was indeed possible in head and neck cancers, and later trials showed that concurrent chemoradiation therapy was better than the sequential combination of chemotherapy followed by radiation therapy. Even later, trials in the oropharynx and other subsites as well establish concurrent hemoradiation therapy to be the standard of care across all subsites in the head and neck. In the adjuvant setting, uh, the determination of whether or not chemotherapy is warranted depends on two main risk factors from surgery and the surgical pathology. The first is a positive surgical margin. And the second is positive E&E, or otherwise known as extranodal extension. That means extension of the tumor outside the confines of the lymph node. In cases of recurrent or metastatic disease, immunotherapy is now, uh, immunotherapy-based regimens, I should say, is now the standard of care. For all comers, immunotherapy plus uh, platinum-based chemotherapy has been shown to be superior to traditional chemotherapy regimens. And in those with high CPS scores, that is a high staining um, percentage of those PDL1 
receptors. Those patients uh, can even receive immunotherapy single agent uh, as the first line uh, for recurrent and metastatic disease. Okay, let's move on to the question section now. What is neoadjuvant chemotherapy? Neoadjuvant therapy is defined as chemotherapy that's given before the local treatment modality, which can be surgery or radiation therapy. Oftentimes it's called neoadjuvant when given before surgery and called induction chemotherapy when given before radiotherapy. Next question, what are some common grading systems we can use to assess a patient's performance status? The ECOG performance status scale and the Karnofsky performance status score are two main ways that we can assess a patient's performance status. Next question, what is the first line cytotoxic agent used in concurrent chemoradiation therapy for head and neck cancer? The primary cytotoxic therapy used for concurrent chemoradiation therapy is cisplatin. Cisplatin is a platinum alkylating agent that can bind to DNA. Next question, what are the two FDA-approved immunotherapy agents that are often used as immunotherapy in head and neck cancer? The two primary immunotherapy agents used are nivolumab, otherwise known by, the, by its brand name Opdivo, and pembrolizumab, otherwise known as Keytruda. Next question, what are the most important pathology factors to consider when considering using chemotherapy in an adjuvant setting? NCCN guidelines dictate that uh, the two most important risk factors uh, that warrant consideration for chemotherapy are positive surgical margins and positive extranodal extension. Final question, what is the first line therapy that is used for recurrent or metastatic head and neck cancer? Immunotherapy-based regimens are now the first line standard of care for recurrent or metastatic disease. This can be pembrolizumab with the addition of a platinum agent, which can be used in all comers, or pembrolizumab alone as a single-agent therapy, which should be used in patients with high PD-L1 staining and high CPS scores that respond best to this type of therapy. That's our show. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you back soon.